You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Heavenly Father, you tell us in Isaiah 40 that uh, the grass withers and the flower fades. The beauty of the field fades. People are like grass, but that your word endures forever. And actually, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that you have caused us to be born again by imperishable seed that does not wither or fade through the proclamation of the gospel. That we will not fade, but we'll be raised on the last day if that work of new birth has been done in our hearts. Lord, I just praise you for that miracle that has been done in the lives of so many here. That through the preaching of the word, you would bring to nothing the foolishness of this world and make the wisdom of God beautiful in the eyes of all who hear it. And I pray for that miracle to be done in the hearts of those who don't know you yet this morning. Please guard me from error. Please help to craft uh, my words in a way that lands exactly as you intend it to, uniquely for each person present. And may we not not be like Israel so often who, who heard and forgot, but let us hear and remember and be doers as James tells us in chapter 1. I ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So our text this morning is going to come from James chapter 3. There's probably a Bible under your seat or near you that you can grab if you don't have one. You're welcome to pull it up on your phone if you like. Uh, We preach out of the English Standard Version, the ESV, but you're welcome to follow along and whichever you prefer. And so as you turn to James chapter 3, I'm going to read a a different, we're going to bookend, we're going to start and end with a, a reading of a large chunk of scripture this morning uh, to kind of set the stage as we discuss wisdom. So you're turning to James 3, but I'm going to read a portion of Job 28 because the questions, excuse me, Job asks really help to frame our discussion this morning really well. So you're turning to James 3. I'm about to read from Job 28. Listen to these questions particularly that he asks. Where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it's not in me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx of sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden in the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportion the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The reason I begin with this is uh, Job is really asking and then answering a question we're going to ask this morning. Where does wisdom come from? Where is its source? And um, if you look in, in, in James chapter 3 now, I'll read in parallel the passage we'll be digging in today, verses 13 to 18, and then we'll jump right into it now. 
So listen for this exact same question that Job asked. Where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of it? James is going to ask something very similar here in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Ask ask yourselves that question. Who among us is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So where can wisdom be found? And who among us is wise and understanding? And how do we know true wisdom from false wisdom? These are the questions we're really asking today as we explore James 3, 13 to 18. And James begins actually uh, in in a way you might not expect. So he asks, who is wise and understanding among you? And and we might look to those with like the greatest education or those who have the greatest hair, perhaps, or those with the most life experience. But James does something he's actually already done a couple times, is he says, prove it, right? Show me. Look at verse 13. He asks the question, then he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So for James, the proof is in the pudding that if you really are wise, if you're going to answer this question, who is wise and understanding among you? and you're going to say, me, then James says, okay, show me by your works and your good conduct. This is a very Jewish or Hebrew way of thinking about wisdom, that wisdom is like the practical application of God's knowledge and his word to any circumstance that might come about in life. It's like how to live a good life. Whereas, in contrast, Greek or Roman philosophy could be more speculative Uh, This is a time in which, and actually Greece was kind of known for this, Paul encounters this in Athens in Acts 17, where sophists or people who just like made money or made uh, made a name for themselves by just being like sounding smart, having good rhetoric, exploring new and crazy and interesting ideas that was more really just entertainment than even true wisdom. So it's very like cerebral, heady idea of wisdom, but in the Bible, wisdom is how well you're living your life. And we read that this morning from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is intensely interested in things like how should you discipline your children? How should you relate to alcohol? Um, Other other things we read in this this, uh, passage in Proverbs that Job read that we're going to read also elsewhere, that wisdom is about how to live a really good life. And so James kind of throws down the gauntlet and says, if you are going to say you're wise, then show me or prove it. This looks a lot like what he said earlier in James chapter 2, 18 to 19. You can probably just glance across the page to see this. He asked the question about what is, what, what is true faith? And he said, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so previously, James has issued the same kind of challenge. Do you really believe? Okay, then show me. Prove it by your good works. And then the passage we ended on last week, if you look at James 3, 11 to 12, he brings up a similar idea. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. 
And so it's this idea that you'll know, Jesus taught this in Matthew 7, and we know that James is, is drawing from the Sermon on the Mount very frequently, that you'll know a tree by its fruit. You'll know someone's faith by their works. And now he's saying, we're going to know your wisdom as well by your good conduct shown through works done in the meekness of, uh, of wisdom. And that word meekness, uh, you may often hear, it, is not weakness. It's really another good word for humility a right understanding of ourselves. Douglas Moo says this in his commentary, that meekness is a healthy understanding of our own unworthiness before God and then a corresponding humility and lack of pride in our dealings with our fellow men. So if we understand who we are by nature before God, apart from Christ, sinful rebels who have shipwrecked our lives by living, by living foolishly and not according to God's wisdom, and that it's only by his grace and mercy by running to his own throne, that we can receive forgiveness, salvation, and he can rebuild our lives. If we understand that, how much more will we humbly relate to one another as we consider the fact that it's only by the grace of God that my life hasn't turned into an utter disaster? Or if it was a disaster, that God was able to redeem it from the pit, right? And, and Job, we read, ends with this. Where is the place of wisdom? Where can wisdom be found? And the answer is in those last lines, where God declares that the fear of the Lord is the place of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is this acknowledgement of our right standing before God only by his grace. It's undeserved, it's unearned. And so we humbly place him first in our lives as a source of wisdom, direction, correction, so that we know how to live. James moves forward, if you look at chapter 3, verse 14 now, with a contrast between meekness and now jealousy and ambition. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So you may be assuming that in this audience, there would be some ambitious people, some people who in the eyes of the world appear very wise, maybe by their position, maybe by their speech, maybe by their influence. And so he's, he's pushing back against them. That, oh, you think you're wise? Well, really, if, it's, if it comes from a heart of bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition, then don't lie and pretend to be wise. That's not true wisdom. That's not wisdom that comes from above. That's false wisdom. And so when you boast in that kind of wisdom, worldly wisdom, that looks really good, but is really not founded on any trust or hope in God, you're lying against the truth. You're lying against true wisdom. Who do we naturally look to for leadership in our society? Who are the influencers, right? We have the rich and wealthy, guys like Elon Musk. Okay, I would look at him and say, he, he's got to have some wisdom. I mean, he's like building incredible industries in things like electric cars and, and spacecraft and whatnot. And uh, my boss was just telling me last week that the cost to launch a rocket, like he's, he's, he's cut down to like one-tenth of what it used to be, right? He's extremely wealthy. Uh, we would look to him and be like, surely some wisdom there. But James is saying, actually, if, if that's rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it's not wisdom. Right? What about politicians, senators, presidents, other statesmen, right? people who appear powerful, influential, who talk a good talk, and who we might look to to save us or alleviate societal problems that we've identified? They sound wise, but how often are political campaigns so deeply rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? Overpromise and then underdeliver once they get into office. Or maybe other influencers, whether it's artists on TikTok, YouTubers, podcasters, right? None of these things are bad in and of themselves, but 
people who attract a following uh, and you know getting more and more views, having you know kind of sensational clickbait type headings on their the titles of their their work that they're producing to just get the max amount of views as possible to be sensational. Uh, we look to them for wisdom, but James is saying that's not true wisdom if it's grounded in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And those two things are really the flip side of the same coin. When things are going well for us, it looks like selfish ambition. Look at me. Look what I've accomplished. Look at these achievements. Look what I've made of myself. But if things are not going well for us, or someone beats us to it, or someone does better than us, or someone shows us up, then that selfish ambition turns to bitter jealousy. And it's a source of rivalries. And it's a source of hatred and greed and jealousy. And James goes on, if you look now at verse 15, he says, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That's his, that's his final evaluation of this kind of wisdom. Earthly, he says. It is earthbound, or we could say it's materialistic. Its, it's view is only on what we can see, taste, touch, smell, sense here, and it ignores spiritual realities. A really good example of this kind of wisdom might be somebody who is uh, so tight-fisted with their own wealth and so focused on building that retirement nest egg or uh, you know, providing for their family, which is a good and right thing to do, absolutely, but they refuse then to be generous to the poor and store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. They're, all they can see is the here and now. They don't have an eternal perspective. Or he says, he goes on and says, this kind of wisdom is unspiritual. The word in the Greek is sukikos, like it's where we get our word for psychology. So really a translation might be like soulish. This kind of wisdom is soulish. Or we could just say very human, very natural way of thinking. Okay, an example might be, if you've read the Iliad, great epic of Western history, kind of the, the bedrock. Uh, people have said, you know, Homer's the only original guy and everyone else is just commenting on Homer. Uh, but you look at guys like Achilles and Agamemnon, these, these men who are waging a war for over a decade and thousands of women are being widowed and their children orphaned because they're obsessed with their own honor and their own reputation. And all they can think about is, I've got to take manners into my own, my own hands to avenge myself when I've been dishonored. And so it leads to chaos and disorders, a very natural, just very human wisdom. It's not wisdom from above. Or you could look at demonic. This is his final evaluation that not only is it it's earthly, it doesn't have an eternal perspective, not only is it soulish or very human, it's also actually demonic, that there are, there are demonic, satanic influences behind this kind of thinking. And I think a great example would be the temptation of Adam and Eve, that Satan comes to them in the garden and says, did God really say that? Like, Surely you're, you're not going to die. Actually, you'll, you'll be like God's. God's been holding out on you. Eve, he's keeping something from you. Seize the fruit. Doesn't it look good? And so she eats and gives some to her husband who is with her. So this kind of wisdom, James says, it's not wisdom, it's the opposite. And his, his most, you know, highest form of criticism for it is actually there's demonic influences behind this way of thinking that is rooted in selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and leads to, he says now in verse 16, Disorder and vile practice. Read this with me. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Disorder, you could think of the shattering of communities, 
the breaking of shalom, that Hebrew word that means peace, but it doesn't just mean peace as in like you and I aren't fighting. It means God's people in God's land, living according to his wisdom, human flourishing, the way life was intended to be from the get-go. And so this kind of false wisdom, it looks really good. Maybe it amasses tons and tons of wealth and followers and political power, but actually what it does is it brings disorder and chaos to communities. And then he says it brings also with it every form of vile practice. For a catalog of this, you could look, uh, we're not going to read it together, but I'd encourage you to look at Romans 1, 21 to 31, where Paul talks about this very thing. He just explains, he describes a, a society, a civilization, a people who have rejected the wisdom of God. And he, he, free, he uses the word foolishness over and over again, pretending to be wise. They turned and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so God gave them up to foolish hearts that were darkened. So they exchanged true wisdom of God, wisdom from above, for wisdom of this world and received foolishness. And then you watch as their society turns to idol worship and then homosexuality becomes prevalent and then a whole laundry list of sins of malice and greed and things like that. And we're not see- where are we not seeing this today? That in our own society, a rejection of the wisdom of God is bringing with it disorder, chaos, and every vile practice. Sexual sins like adultery, sex outside of marriage, pornography, divorce, homosexuality and transgenderism, these things are rooted in false wisdom that comes from selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Sins of greed like unchecked consumerism, corporate greed. We're experiencing the highest rates of individual corporate and government debt the world's ever seen right now. That's not wisdom from above. Or sins of malice, things like school shootings and riots that can be incredibly destructive. Abortion, 60 million children murdered in their mother's womb in the past half century. Other murders, gang violence, violence over drugs and alcohol, domestic abuse. All these, these are every form of vile practice and James says it comes from a perverted false wisdom that's rooted in selfish ambitions, being self-absorbed. And so it's shattering communities and it brings chaos to families, to neighborhoods, to cities, to whole nations, and, and the whole world is experiencing this kind of chaos that comes from false wisdom. But it doesn't have to get that big, actually. Uh, I have a, a phenomenal example I want to point you to that shows how just on an individual level, it can start small before it grows you know, big and out of control. And it's from the Lord of the Rings. Raise your hand if you've read the Lord of the Rings or seen the Lord of the Rings. Raise them high. You should be very proud of that. Okay, if your hand's not raised, I highly exhort you to exercise wisdom from above and go read the books. The most Christian book I've ever read outside the Bible. So I'm not, that's not hyperbole. They're phenomenal. Uh, The movies don't quite do justice to that, but they're still very good. And so if you've you've seen the movies or read the books, you'll be able to follow with me. And if not, I'm going to try and set the stage for you. And really, I think a perfect example of this contrast between true wisdom and false wisdom is, it's actually obvious Tolkien is drawing on this in in this dialogue between Frodo and Boromir towards the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, okay? So I'm going to read a short portion of it, but to set the stage, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, there's this evil guy called Sauron. He's like a Satan figure, the, the Dark Lord. He was defeated in the past, but he's gathering strength to come and destroy the world of, of Middle-earth. And the good guys, who are like elves and dwarves and men and hobbits, they're like these you know, half-sized people, 
they have this object called the ring of power, which was made by Sauron. And whoever can wield it has like incredible power. Uh, it turns people invisible sometimes. And it would allow, it would allow the person who uses the ring to, to accrue immense power. And Sauron's trying to get that back because if he gets that back, he's basically unstoppable at this point, right? But the good guys know if you try to use this thing, it'll actually corrupt you and, it, and turn you into just a puppet to get the ring back to Sauron ultimately. And so no one can, no one can use it. The good guys are not going to use it. They're actually going to take it, this group of nine individuals, like no army, no dragons, nothing fanciful like that, just like nine guys are going to take the ring and march it into Mordor, which is Sauron's evil lair, to this giant volcano called Mount Doom. And the only way it can be destroyed is if they throw it into the fires of Mount Doom. All right? So that's their plan is to like go into this bad guy's headquarters and hope to not get caught. And if they do, like I don't know what nine of them are going to do. But So here's this conversation between Boromir, he's one of the men who's tempted to use the ring, and Frodo. Now listen, this is so clear. It's right on the surface of this contrast between false wisdom that is driven by selfish ambition and wisdom from above. Listen to this. Frodo says, we can't use it. What is done with it turns to evil. And then Boromir got up and walked about impatiently. So you go on, he cried. Gandalf, Elrond, all these folk have taught you to say so. For themselves, they might be right. These elves and half-elves and wizards, they would come to grief, perhaps. Yet often, I doubt they are wise and not merely timid. True-hearted men, they will not be corrupted. We of Ministereth have been staunch through long years of trial. We do not desire the power of wizard lords, only strength to defend ourselves. And behold, in our need, chance brings to light the ring of power. It is a gift, I say, a gift to the foes of Mordor. It is mad not to use it, to use the power of the enemy against him. The fearless, the ruthless, these alone will achieve victory. What could not a warrior do in this hour? A great leader, what could not Aragon do? Or if he refuses, why not Boromir? The ring would give me power of command. How I would drive the hosts of Mordor and all men would flock to my banner. Boromir strode up and down, speaking even more loudly. Almost he seemed to have forgotten Frodo while his talk dwelt on walls and weapons and the mustering of men. And he drew plans for great alliances and glorious victories to be. And he cast down Mordor and became himself a mighty king, benevolent and wise. And suddenly he stopped and waved his arms. And they tell us to throw it away, he cried. I do not say destroy it. That might be well if reason showed any hope of doing so. It does not. The only plan that is proposed is that a halfling should walk blindly into Mordor and offer the enemy every chance of recapturing it for himself? Folly! And then there's this brief exchange between Frodo and Boromir, and then he goes on, why are you so unfriendly? Frodo's kind of starting to shrink back, like, I don't think I should be here anymore. I am a true man, neither thief nor tracker. I need your ring. That you know now. But I give you my word, I don't desire to keep it. Will you not at least let me make trial of my plan? Lend me the ring! No, no, cried Frodo. The council laid it upon me to bear it. It is by our own folly that the enemy will defeat us, cried Boromir. Obstinate fool, running willfully to death and ruining our cause. If any mortals have claim to the ring, it is the men of Numenor and not halflings. It is not yours, save by unhappy chance. It might have been mine. It should have been mine. Give me the ring! And then he tries to take it from Frodo, and if you know what happens, he slips it on, disappears, and, and runs off. But what happens is, the rest of the party gets ambushed by orcs. Uh, two of the hobbits get carried off, taken captive. Boromir himself dies. Frodo escapes, but Sam is the only one who's able to like, kind of keep up with him. And so the fellowship is broken. It's like the name of the chapter. 
their fellowship, these like nine buddies who, are, who took an oath to like fight and, lo- and strive and go on this mission together and die together if need be, is shattered. And what would have happened if he would have just given Bormir the ring, right? Bormir in his head is only thinking in earthly, unspiritual, and actually if you know this from the book's demonic ways, the, the ring has actually corrupted him. And all he can see is, we have this thing, this weapon of mass destruction, why wouldn't we use it against the enemy? He thinks far too highly of himself. He's not bearing out wisdom and humility, and he's letting his selfish ambition drive him to actually bring about disorder in the shattering of the fellowship. It's like such a great example of this contrast between true wisdom and false wisdom. If you look further, James now is going to explain to us, okay, so then what is true wisdom and where does it come from? He's already mentioned that it comes from above, but look at verse 17 with me. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is what true wisdom sounds like. It's not the wisdom that Boromir displayed. In the passage, he lists quite a few things. First, it's pure. Then he has a list of three things. They all rhyme at the Greek, in the Greek, so it's likely that he's thinking of them as a unit. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. All of those kind of informing their understanding of each other. Then it's full of mercy and good fruits. And finally, it's impartial and sincere. Joe Rigney, uh, over at Desiring God, has written a really good article uh, about this related to Christmas, but I'm going to read his description of this kind of wisdom. What characterizes such wisdom? First, it's pure. Unlike the vile and wicked practices that mark worldly wisdom, heavenly wisdom is marked by undivided devotion to God. God's wisdom is holy, unblemished, and whole. Heavenly wisdom brings order to chaos and confusion because it is wholeheartedly devoted to God's purposes. James places the purity and holiness of heavenly wisdom in a position of prominence. It comes first, and in that way, it governs and guides the rest. Next, heavenly wisdom is peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. It leads us to avoid unnecessary conflict and refrain from violence and quarrelsomeness. Heavenly wisdom may lead us to fight and to defend what is good and true, but it does not love to fight for fighting's sake. If given the choice, the wise and understanding are eager to live at peace with all men. The wise are willing to be friends with the one who is truly friendly. Heavenly wisdom yields easily when moral issues are not at stake. It has a sense of proportion and courtesy and bears with the foibles and stumbles of the weak. It is both open to reason and obedient, able to distinguish when it is good to bend and when it's time to stand. Wisdom from above quickly overlooks faults and is therefore full of mercy. When forgiveness is sought, it is eagerly granted. Like the father in the parable, heavenly wisdom rejoices when prodigals come home. And finally, heavenly wisdom abhors all hypocrisy and partiality. What you see is what you get. Wisdom's character is consistent and persists through all manner of circumstances. The actions may be different since different circumstances require different responses, but beneath every response is sincerity, judiciousness, and refreshing honesty. That's the kind of wisdom that marks out wisdom from above. Wisdom that begins not with selfish ambition, but with meekness, with humility, with the fear of the Lord. And then James goes on, finally, to say, here's the fruit. Whereas worldly wisdom leads to disorder and vile practices, wisdom from above leads to, read verse 18 with me now, 
A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Contrasting sharply with disorder, heavenly wisdom brings peace, stability, order out of chaos. This harvest of righteousness is both the personal righteousness of holiness, of purity, of ourselves conforming to God's moral standard. I think it's also rightly to understand it as social righteousness, right? A rightly ordered society where authorities in that society are respected and obeyed and the authorities use their position to love and serve and cherish and and lead this society towards flourishing. This idea of peace is not a false, shallow, or fragile peace. We may have to confront lives. We might have to confront evil, even with violence at times. But it desires to restore things to a state of peace, to a state of shalom, where the community is experiencing wholeness together. This is the fruit, this is the harvest, righteousness and peace that comes from wisdom that comes from above. I got one more example to show you, this contrast between true wisdom, false wisdom in the life of Jesus from a very memorable situation, where you're going to very clearly see earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom and wisdom that is instead pure, peaceable, open to reason, full of mercy, and bringing about a harvest of righteousness and peace. So I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew's to the left of wherever you are in your Bible. It's the first gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So once you hit John, keep going. When you hit Luke, keep going. When you hit Mark, keep going to Matthew 16. This is a very famous event in the gospels, and I think it just so clearly shows off this contrast between wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Matthew chapter 16. I'll set the stage for you. Uh, Jesus has been teaching around Galilee and such. He asks his disciples in verse 13, who do you say that I am? They're like, well, some people say you're just John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. He's like, no, who do you say that I am? And Peter says this in verse 16, Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ is the Jewish word, Greek for the Jewish word Messiah. It's the coming king, the chosen one who's going to restore the kingdom of God and save God's people from all their enemies. And Jesus replies, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, not heavenly, earthly wisdom, but my Father who is in heaven, heavenly wisdom. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, what allowed Peter to recognize Jesus' true identity was wisdom from above, who recognized him as the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one who's going to set up the kingdom of God on earth and restore peace and righteousness on the planet, starting in Jerusalem. There's this great reversal in the next few verses. Look down at at verse 21 now. So from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So you're right, Peter. I am the Messiah. I am the coming king. And here's the plan. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer a whole bunch from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. And then ultimately I'm going to be killed. But I'll be raised on the third day. This is so funny. And then verse 22. Peter took him aside. Imagine this playing out. Peter puts an arm around Jesus. (laughs) Come here, Jesus. Get over here. And he begins to rebuke him. Like I imagine Peter saying, like, Jesus, that's not the plan. 
Like, that's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He actually would probably sound just like Boromir. Like, that's how you're going to restore the kingdom of God? No, 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 you're going to need some armor, some weapons. We're, we're all going to need your disciples. We're going to need some, some armor and weapons. You're going to need an army. We're going to kick some Roman butt, kick them out of Judea. We're going to set up the throne of David. You're going to rule from it from, from time eternity. And Jesus interrupts him. If you look at verse 20, <clears throat> oh, I lost my spot. If you look at verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. He says, Peter, the way you're thinking right now is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's actually demonic, the way you're thinking. That's not the wisdom from above. The wisdom from above is actually that the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, would leave his place of honor and in the heavens above and descend and take on human form and live for 30 years and then get a whole bunch of people mad at him for claiming to be the Son of God so that they crucify him on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem and bury him in a tomb that day. That's the plan. From all eternity past, that's the plan. That's heavenly wisdom. And so for, for our perspective, from our earthly and spiritual, even demonic perspective, that's insane. There's no way you can accomplish victory doing that. And yet Jesus is saying, no, that's exactly the plan. That is heavenly wisdom. This is how I'm going to be enthroned and crowned king. It's actually with a crown of thorns. And my throne will be a Roman cross. And all people will flock to me and acknowledge my lordship because of this event. That's heavenly wisdom. I'm going to end our time by giving us just four applications. I'm going to read one last chunk of scripture together. The first is, as we think about this, James has given us a challenge. He starts with a question. Who among you is wise in understanding? So my first, my first challenge to you is the same as James. To do some self-reflection. Are you wise in understanding? Do you show wisdom through good conduct shown in the meekness of wisdom? That's how you know if you're wise. This is not like a rhetorical question where he's expecting us all to go, no, we're, not, we're, all, we're all losers, none of us are wise. No, some of us could be wise. God wants us to be wise. He's just challenging us, check your true wisdom by the fruit it produces, peace, righteousness, good works, humility. That's how you know you're wise. And then give your attention, give your focus, give your time, give your ears to people who model that behavior not the rich, wealthy, influential folks who actually reveal a life of selfish ambition or bitter jealousy. Second, ask for wisdom. James has already commanded us to do this in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask, and God will give it to you because he gives generously. Like God wants you to be wise. God wants to give you wisdom. God wants you to rightly order your life according to his law. God wants you to be humble. God wants you to live a flourishing life of righteousness and good fruit. So ask him for more wisdom. James has already given us the answer. The, the next step is to just ask, to pray. God, give us wisdom. Make me wiser wherever you're at. Whether this is the first step, this is the first season of your journey in Christianity, or whether you're a seasoned believer and you've been around the block, and you have some wisdom, 
Keep growing in wisdom. Don't stall out. Don't stagnate. All of us should be asking God for wisdom to rightly order our lives according to his will. Finally, we've already done this, but look to Jesus, who is, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus became the wisdom of God to us. Jesus himself is wisdom as a person, wisdom personified. So you want to know what pure, peaceable, loving, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere looks like? Look to Jesus and take up your cross and follow him. That's heavenly wisdom from above. And then finally, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 2 that if we have the spirit of Christ, that we actually have the mind of Christ. Again, ask wisdom. God wants to give it to us, but we have the spirit of Christ. We have the mind of Christ to discern and understand spiritual things that are foolishness to the world. So this room is filled with people who have the spirit of Christ and therefore have the mind of Christ. And so if you want to be wise, hang out with the people in this room. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I've heard a saying that you're like the sum total of your closest five friends, something like that. So think about that for a second. Who are the five closest people to you? Friends, parents, could be your children. It could be a YouTuber that you give a lot of attention to, honestly. Like who are the five closest people to you? You will be some summative synthesis of them. Are they wise or foolish? Are they adding to your walk with Christ or hindering it? Whoever walks with the wise will become wise. This room is filled with people that have the spirit and mind of Christ. So commit yourself to the local church. Commit yourself to being here every Sunday, searching the scriptures, getting to know deeper and deeper what is true wisdom from above and how do we apply it to our lives and looking at other people as they do it themselves. Maybe they're a life stage or two ahead of you and can mentor and disciple you and and say, here, here's how I applied God's wisdom in this situation. And if you are several life stages ahead, like my boys need you. My boys need you to be pouring into them. I need you to be pouring into me. I have no idea how to raise a teenager. I need your wisdom, Bree, on how to do this. Right? We need each other to share the mind of Christ, the wisdom that comes from above as we would do this life together to reap a harvest of righteousness and peace. I'm gonna end by reading 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. You don't need to turn there. You could just listen. I'm gonna invite our musicians to come on up. <clears throat> In this passage talks so much. I mean, you should hear echoes of the Boromir Frodo conversation, the Peter and Jesus conversation, the passage from James. All of those things are echoing, resounding forth from this passage. So I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to read it. This is 1 Corinthians 18 to the end of the chapter. The word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's actually the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the great debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Do this now, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom of God from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Just please stand and boast in the Lord together. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.